I wanted to dedicate dedicate uh, Hey Bulldog to Stephen Doster and the Number no. Nine Orchestra because for about 25 years on John Lennon's birthday, they and a potpourri of Austin musicians would hole up at a venue and play Lennon and Beatles songs. And they did such a great Hey Bulldog. Of course, that's not happening this year, but hopefully again in 2021. And the Stephen Doster Number no. 9 Orchestra tributes grew out of radio shows that I would do with the community for John's birthday. We did the first one with live musicians 30 years ago. Welcome this week's When There Was Fab. I'm Ed Chin. And I'm John Stone. Well, we've got two guests with us. Uh, uh, you all know Darren Murphy, who's not with us, He, but we do have some of his good friends. Yep. Yes. I thought, and oh Randy my gosh, we're, we're, we're introducing Darren Murphy? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We Although we, we will have him with us real soon now, you know, before we start spending the rest of our time reviewing boxes until the end of the year. All right. Well, this is uh, Stephen Doster, and I'm very happy to be here. And this is Randy Miller. I'm going to be in the Number no. Nine Orchestra with Stephen. Randy has been with a group called Zen Archer. That's where I know him from, and he's played with John. John and I have written together and uh, played on each other's songs and uh, sat in with each other over the years. It's been a, a great friendship. Well, before we get started talking about the show, your show, we have now gotten some confirmation from all the way up to Giles Martin that, yes, indeed, Revolver is coming. No date, but end of October seems likely. We have heard from Giles. Yeah, just in time for Christmas. I'm hoping that it's full of some fun outtakes and things like that, but what's your favorite Beatle record or what's your favorite record of all time? Or what's the greatest record of all time? Revolver's a record that pops in my head every time. For me, the thing about it, when I first heard it, we heard the American version missing three pretty important John Lennon songs. I'm only sleeping. Andrew Bird can sing. And there was another, uh, Dr. Robert. I mean, those are three of my favorite John. So we, we play all three of those songs. So it was really news to me as a young kid. You guys, what record did they put those out on? Uh, yesterday and today. That's what I thought, yeah. I- when I bought the album, it was just like any other Beatle album. Here were these John Lennon songs that I got 
very acquainted with because they were great. And so when Revolver came out, that sound was not foreign. Perhaps didn't have the same impact it would have had had we not had that early release. Yeah, the fact that they came through on Yesterday and Today in between the two records, it wasn't quite so sudden a jump. You were diving into it a little bit. You know, you you had more of the backwards guitars, and then you had Rain and Paperback Rider in there as well. Exactly. At what point did you find uh, either the courage or just the, the new feeling that you said, I'm not going to write for that other person, I'm going to write for myself? Drugs. So it was Rubber Soul and then Yesterday and Today and then Revolt. Yes. Yes, for me, yes. in my mind, for whatever reason, and, and I thought, I, you know, I was a big fan. I, I always thought Rubber Soul, Revolver. I just, in my mind, did. I, as a kid, I guess I didn't quite pick up on it the way I did later, you know. It really was different because with Rubber Soul being kind of affected in being more of a, an acoustic album. Mm-hmm. More organic. Yes. And then Nowhere Man had been taken from that album and released as a single. And again, that was yeah. kind of a different sound. Yeah, it was. So, Even so what we, it was about, you know? Yes. I mean, it was weird. Yes, absolutely. And they didn't add anything back to the American Revolver. They just took the three Lennon songs off. <laughs> you know, that's the thing about Rubber Soul. Rubber Soul, you can make a case for in the U.S. because, well, they not only did they take some things off, they added some different things. Mm-hmm. Well, I know it was contractual, but I'm sure Lennon's reaction to an American Revolver would have been like, what the hell? <laughs> there were more George Harrison songs on Revolver than there were John Lennon songs. I know there right. were only really two uh, Lennon songs on there, uh, She Said and, and Tomorrow Never Knows. I heard those three songs we're talking about after I heard the Revolver. So I, I guess I never heard yesterday, today. Was it, it was an American release call that. Not to go too far into it, were you around and buying records at the time? Or oh, was yeah. This- yeah, I'm okay. an old guy. I, I was like waiting with bated breath for every Stones Beatle record that came out. I don't know. It could even be where I was. Were you here? I was in the States at that time, and I was in the South. I was in Texas. Yeah, I mean, yesterday and today, of course, with the whole Butcher cover, and it was not probably something that was quite so prevalent on the radio. It, it might have been. I, I I want to find out more about it because, uh, you know, what year would that be? 66? 66. Uh, yeah, 66. Yesterday and today was, what, like June, July? Well, I was also going through some pretty heavy things in my life, uh, uh, personal yeah. at that time too so maybe I, I missed it but i was a big fan even then i was a little boy i was waiting for all the records rubber soul for instance just completely you know clocked me <laughs> i think it hit me in the way it hit brian wilson <laughs> just yeah. blew, blew my mind that would have been the american version yeah i lived in england as a little boy but moved back to the united states in the early uh, 60s so was it before they hit or after they hit? Had you heard of them in England? No, no, no. It was before they hit. What would it happen in England? I was listening to Ricky Nelson and the Everly Brothers and Roy Orbison, Cliff Richards. So what was the date of the Ed Sullivan show? February the 9th, 1964. I had just gotten back in the United States. And during that show, I when I first, I was all hyped about it like everybody else. I, I was eight years old, waiting to see it, loved it. But I also thought to myself, this is just me. Roy Oberson's pretty heavy, and so is Everly Brothers. You know, these guys are supposed to be, you know, there was a lot of hype, you know, even to eight-year-old. I was I was thinking about the hype. And then uh, the next song I heard was Please Please Me, and that was all over after that. 
I mean, for whatever reason, I first heard uh, Hold Your Hand, and I heard that song. And then years later, I would read an interview with John Lennon, and uh, they're asking me about to speak on, on certain songs, and they go, please, please me. He goes, well, that was just me trying to do my best Roy Orbison. <laughs> and I went, where do you, you go? You know, it's no wonder I loved it so much. Well, and then Roy Orbison was there when they wrote She Loves You, or at least when they started writing She Loves wow. You. Wow. I didn't know that. That's the whole yeah, yeah, yeah thing in Pretty Woman. Oh, man. They were on tour together, and they were in the bus, and John and Paul went, and they got back on the bus first, and they were you know playing around with their guitars, and the song they were working on was She Loves You, and Roy Orbison came in the bus and sat down and you know watched them, and it's like, well, I like that song. Wow. That's amazing. Pretty Woman and Day Tripper certainly have some similarities, too, yeah. in, the, in the riff. Yeah. yeah. Maybe accidental, maybe not. <laughs> well, John makes no bones about borrowing when it's appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently it was appropriate a lot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The one thing about the box, which we've heard, which I've managed to pretty much confirm is that they're going to put Paperback Rider and Rain separate as an EP, which is... Well, the same thing they did with the Let It Be box, which is a little bit weird to me. You know, they're going to have a five-song EP in addition to everything else. Uh, four regular-length discs and, and this EP. It's like, well... I think they did it because Paperback Rider and Rain aren't on Revolver. But Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane aren't on Sgt. Pepper, and they put them on the main disc with the rest of the Pepper songs. And, and I totally agree. I think Paperback Rider and Rain should have been in the box set on the album. Because that's what really introduced me to the Revolver sound. Absolutely, there were hints of it on Yesterday and Today, but Paperback Rider and Rain, I was mesmerized by the bass and Mm. just, you know, the backward guitars. We hadn't heard anything like that. And uh, to me, those two recordings are so groundbreaking. I wish that they would be included on the Revolver album because it's from the sessions. It's from that period, and I think people would appreciate Revolver even more if they heard those two on the album. A new mix, that's going to be great. Can you imagine those two songs in surround? Uh, you know, an Atmos mix. The vocals the vocals just enveloping you with Paul's lead right in the middle. That's, you know, wow. Did uh, Maybe they left them off because they were afraid people's minds would be blown so badly. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Again, I don't yes. think they can handle it if we put both these songs on, on the record. And that's that, you know, and I'm, I'm joking, but at the same time, what band in history has, has uh, had, you know, all these records that everyone can't stop talking about 50 years later? And, and they're surrounded by songs like Paperback Rider Rain and Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane. And, you know, at least they threw those on uh, uh, the Magical Mystery Tour. But, you uh, they had all these singles happening that were just so groundbreaking that it's 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 confusing for me because I was a a, a young boy. Uh, a lot of it uh, I heard at the the jukebox at the pool where I went every you know, and I remember hearing Paperback Rider, and we probably played it fifty times in a row the day yes. that they put it on the box, nineteen sixty six. I I remember exactly where I was when I heard Paperback Rider. And uh, I was not too far from you, Stephen. Uh, I was in Wimberley at a, uh, it was an old 
it was a fort, uh, and it was a tourist town, and they had a jukebox in the game room, uh. and Paperback Rider came on. My parents were telling me I had to go, and I said, no, I need to hear this one more time. And I, I just played it back to back oh, and yeah. was mesmerized. Oh, so. So. I still am. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. just kills me, stuff like that, is, is how uh, I, I read something in on the internet or, you know, why are is it, the Beatles still holding up, you know, and where other bands don't? And I'm going, well, because it was great. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> it really was it's as that, good as It's that simple. It. it was really great. Yeah. Well, they were they were better than everybody else. I mean, that's that's all you can say. Yeah, you know, yeah. Simply, yeah, my my uh, paperback writer rain story was that I saw the um, I hadn't heard it, but I saw the the single at the local drugstore, and mm-hmm. it just demanded, you know, we have to get this. And my mom got it, and I took it home and put it on the record player, and I played Paperback Rider, and it was great. And I flipped it over and played Rain, and I think I played it over and over and over to a point where my yeah. mom had to go, stop that. <laughs> <laughs> I like Paperback Rider, but Rain just did something to me. Changed me forever. I, being the second generation fan, have no such story. Paperback Rider and Rain were both on the Blue Album when I got them in the mid-70s, so it was in there amongst all this other really great stuff. But did they hit you as being kind of different? I bought both 62 to 66 and 67 to 70, and when I listen to them, it's right up there butting up against Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane and Mm. Pepper Song, so, you know... It was certainly different than what was on 62 to 66. Yeah, it's real different hearing them out, you know, after they were done, you know, rather than when they, they first came out, like, just, you're not as old as us, you know. The gospel was delivered to you. I mean, I had a kind of, I heard this, and then I heard this, and then I heard this. And, but it, if you hear it all, when it's all, all done, and you're hearing Strawberry Fields on the same day, you're hearing Paperback Writer, it's different. Yeah, and they're both impressive. Yeah, they're which is why I just can't imagine how the kids are doing it today. You, you you put on Spotify, you put on Apple Music, and you just select something. And it's like, how is that going to hit you? But it does. Yeah. yeah. It's just, I think for us, we got to watch and hear the evolution of the Beatles. And marvel at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, from 64 to 69, the evolution is just light years different. And paperback, Rider and Rain, and Revolver is a pivotal evolution for the Beatles, you know, with strings, uh, Eleanor Rigby, and and the production quality took a step forward with more bass, more kick. John, you were talking about how the bass guitar was mic'd with a speaker. Oh, right. They used a speaker to mic the bass guitar, the the Rickenbacker, and it it just changed the way the bass was Sounded. Explain that to me because I've spent my, my life recording stuff, how that's done. You see, Jeff Emmerich had been thinking. He knew that a speaker basically is a microphone, and a microphone is basically a speaker wired in reverse. Now, it's not that simple, but basically that was the principle. So he started thinking, what if I rewired a bass cabinet speaker so that it would record another bass cabinet speaker 
plugged in to Paul's new Rickenbacker bass, which by the way was already improving his bass sounds, and he wondered what would happen. He talked it over with a few engineers and they thought he was nuts. But he talked to Ken Townsend and Ken Townsend thought the idea had merit. Paul moving off of the Hoffner, that's a big change. As much as we all love the Hoffner, the sound of the Rickenbacker is a very different thing. Right. It is. But yeah. as far as technically, I couldn't explain it to you. You'll have to talk to Jeff Emmerich. I don't know. You know, I almost got to, and, and I didn't. I missed him. He, we were trying to bring him to our studio in Austin, which is called uh, EAR Ear, and uh, we were going to bring him to do a you know master class or whatever it was. And well, before he passed, and very sad that it didn't happen. But at least I got to kind of dream on it. Second off. We got the Brian statue. The Brian statue was un unveiled in Liverpool, a, a respectful but not too far a distance from the Beatles statue. It looks really nice, despite John's comments. Well, I'm just saying the statue looks like John Eastman, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Then third, before we actually get into our main topic or topics, we still haven't heard anything about the Sometime box, although now that the Revolver box has been confirmed in the next week or two, if it's coming, they should tell us that. It's kind of been more than slightly rumored that it's coming out on the 9th for John's birthday. Hmm. Hmm. Nice. We'll be doing a show that day, so I'll miss it. This has been an ongoing thing for the entire year between the Lennons and the record company and mm -hmm. everybody else, which is a shame. But, I mean, you know, people just need to understand what context means. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just, you I know. I just agree more, Ed. Like, you know, especially with that and the reason why they might be holding it up because of a woman, you know. Right. And there is plenty of material out there with Lennon explaining the reason, the rationale behind its use, and it's totally valid. And I don't know. getting ready to pick up on a show which you've been part of well at least steven you've been part of since pretty much the very beginning which was 1990 yes it started with a radio uh, guru here in austin and uh, he's also good friends with the uh, yoko ono named jody denberg i've been uh, photographing yoko for over 40 years and Jody's been interviewing Yoko for all her official press kits for over 25 years. And so Jody had the idea to take my photos and connect them with Yoko's quotes and to make a special birthday present for Yoko. Matching up Yoko's thoughts on music, art, what have you, to Bob's reflections of them in photographs was just really, it was a beautiful process. They made this thing and I thought, wow, it's so great. So I just wanted to tell them that, you know, you can put it out there. We all shared this experience, the whole world, you know, so why not bring it out? On the 10th anniversary of John's death, did a show and a bunch of uh, local uh, artists played on it. And around that same time, I always call it my inspiration just because I thought, well, 
it's insane that we don't, you know, keep this music rolling. Not that it's not going to be, but you know, in Austin, and and so we started doing this this show every year. We, of course, we had to miss our, our 30th and our 31st performance because of the pandemic. So we're coming back on the 32nd. Randy performed with me on uh, October the 9th, 2019, and we haven't done it since. So uh, we're very excited uh, with the rhythm section of, of Randy Miller and uh, Darren Murphy to be doing it again this year. And uh, we just did it out of a love. And, I, and not to sound maudlin or anything else but for me it was just heartbreaking what happened to john it, you know, a light went off on, on that 10 years after he had passed away that i want to do this every year I, I you know everyone knows who john lennon is it's not like i'm keeping his name alive or anything but uh i just wanted to pay tribute and homage to it you know we're not like a band that goes out and just plays private parties and makes money off of it it's a really is a true tribute and uh it's just been a gas. It's been a wonderful thing. Uh, I'm starting up with Randy in a this week, you know. So we we yeah. really rehearse and you know way out of it, and it's a beautiful experience. And everyone has a great time. There's not a whole lot of stuff out there on it on YouTube and stuff. I get there was, and someone took it down. I mainly just do it for the people that come to the show because it's not my music. I don't think so much about recording it. Well, this is at a new site too. You you lost your previous home. Uh, they closed down, right? Right, yeah. Threadgills, where we did it forever, and and that was a fun thing because it was really loose. Then people could bring their children there. Everyone's walking around. It's like Woodstock or something. Now it's at ACL Live, and it's more of a theater. The, the three ten, the smaller side of it. Uh, Randy's done a lot of shows there, actually, in the bigger room. It's, it's a perfect thing, you know. As the years go by, I just want it to sound good and look good. But at a certain age. How good it looks! It's, it's like turn the lights off and let's just, <laughs> let's just listen. You know, I'm an old guy, but it, it's a really good theater. If if you're ever thinking about doing a show in in Austin uh, and you you want a nice venue that isn't so big, maybe a better way to think about it. It was ten years after John's passing, but it was also his fiftieth birthday. Yeah, well, I like that that you said that because that's a, immediately where I went with it. Although we. We started it on his 51st birthday, and, and, and this year, of course, will be, uh, uh, what? 82. 82, you know? And so it's like a, that's kind of wild to even uh, think of. But but I, I like the idea of, of doing the show on, on his birthday, but we were slow on the draw, and we started up. My little boy, who was in the womb when we did the first show, a few years later, four, five, six years later, he's going, what are you doing tonight? I said, well, it's going to be John Lennon's birthday uh, tribute that we're doing. He's going, oh, birthday, will there be a cake? <laughs> and I said, no, there, there won't be a cake. He goes, well, why not, Dad? And I said, well, because uh, John's not alive anymore. He was someone who was assassinated. Someone and I explained to him that he'd been killed. And he said, well, who would do something like that? And I said, I don't want to say his name, Jang. My son's name is Jang. I don't want to say his name. Nothing, you know, is what I like to say. And he goes, nothing's a good name for him. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So that's been our little. That's story. a good story. Why we don't have a birthday cake. <laughs> well, it's also like uh, in Forrest Gump after that scene in there. It's like, you know. Some years later, that nice young man from England was on his way home to see his little boy and was signing some autographs for no particular reason at all. Somebody shot, you know. Yeah. 
let's talk a little bit about the show. And, you know, how has the show changed over the years? Well, we would do a Beatles show in the uh, spring where we did, we're doing Paul and uh, George and everybody's songs, Beatles songs. And then we then, then morphed into doing more of a concentrated uh, fall show uh, on John's birthday. On John, although like for this year, for instance, we're going to do Penny Lane and we're going to do something by George too. Although I've even played around with that in my, my mind if it's right to do that. But, but you know, because <laughs> it's a John Lennon tribute, but I don't anymore. I'm really happy uh, uh, I figure any set where I'm playing Strawberry Fields, if I can play Penny Lane, is all right. It started off with a, a very important part of it was a rhythm section of uh, Andy Salmon and uh, Tommy Taylor, who played with Christopher Cross. And, and when I saw that band, they were just like, I didn't know anything about them other than they were like an incredible cover band. They could play anything, and uh, they were really good at it. And so uh, they had a long background together and knew that music pretty well. And I basically got challenged by somebody saying, let's do a Beatles versus Stones show at the Continental Club in Austin, Texas. And I said, well, I'll do either one. I love them both. And, and they said, we want you to do the Beatles. And so that's how it started. And one of my favorite moments of ever doing this is the first show we did, which we brought in a gold gilded harp into the, the, uh, the Continental Club. And well, we proceeded to sing pretty much as best as we could. You know, she's leaving home and stuff like that. I never thought before then that any, anyone could perform a song like that live. I just didn't think it was possible, but we did. And uh, Strawberry Fields, we just do our best. We, we don't use tapes. We make our own tapes. We, we just play it as organic as we possibly can. You're playing it on acoustic instruments? You're not actually bringing in a synth and doing everything? Well, we do have a synthesizer, but but he, he's not playing the tapes. Like I see bands and they okay, you know, yeah, it's, it's not just it's not just hit one button. It's is you're actually playing. You're hearing all the sound effects of I Am the Walrus. You know, for instance, when we do create cacophony and stuff, uh, our keyboard player has created it. We're not using any tapes lifted off of some gotcha, recorders, which gotcha. you, you can get now. You can basically get every track. And we, we, you know, we've just done it as uh, fans and as organic as we possibly can. The, the Stones guys pretty much just knew all the songs we knew and, you know, frat cover bands, you know, satisfaction. And they weren't really as prepared. One of the people who came along very early in the show was a young man that you all know, Darren Murphy. And we're getting ready to actually go on and do the show third or fourth year and he's very young and I was even young then he uh, walks up and says see I really want to play on the show and I said well listen that's sweet you know but you know we have a kind of a worked out set and and, uh, and we only have X amount of time and he goes no you don't understand I'm really into this and I just saw that the way he said it to me I said well it sounds like you are and uh he performed that night. I brought him up. I think he sang Mother. Wow. He just became an instant crowd favorite. The crowd became pretty persnickety uh, about who they liked and who they didn't. So when, when I was trying to be all-inclusive and have a, everybody in Austin be on the bill, you know, the crowd would kind of say, well, we like Darren. <laughs> we don't like anybody else. <laughs> we like you guys. And so, you know, it was kind of all, all over the years, you know, morphing. This year, I'm, I'm going to have a few guests, but... They're mainly guests that were asked to do it for 2020 that couldn't. I feel bad about, you know, if you, if you invite people to come sing with you that, that night and then the pandemic happens, you know, the only the right thing to me to do is to invite everybody who was on the bill 
when we had to call it a, a day. Uh, how are you doing the arrangements? Are you trying to stick to the originals as much as possible, or are you allowing a little bit of room for people to put their own style into it? Great question. And I guess if somebody else is getting up there doing their thing and I'm backing them up, they can put their own style into it. For me, I'll be frank about it. It's like, we probably sound like we're putting our own thing in it because nobody can sound the same. But I'm not a big fan of a lot of Beatle covers, even by some of my favorite artists. I, I just like the way they play. And uh, and so I'm really not trying to uh, put my flavor uh, or, or my style of music, which is pretty different, really. I, mean, I don't think my music sounds like it's a real derivative, you know, some of it maybe, uh, from the Beatles. But I really just like, you know, so to answer your question, I think we're trying to sound as much like them as possible. We're not trying to bring something new to it. So Randy, are you what we would call the musical director this time around? Or other than just bass player, what is your role in this production? I'm playing Paul to Stephen's John. Stephen's been doing this so long. He's got such a great idea of what works for the audience, what works uh, mechanically between the musicians that, you know, if I have a suggestion, I'll be glad to bring it up. Absolutely. But but I'm not going to try to reinvent the wheel. I, I think <laughs> I, I've seen this show several times, and of course it's changed over the years with the material, but it's pretty amazing. It's inspiring. Like I say, if I can help, I will. But everyone that's on the stage, they're all pretty darn good musicians. He was talking about Tommy Taylor and Andy Salmon, the rhythm section from Christopher's band. They're excellent musicians. Tommy Taylor's played with Eric Johnson and others. I know Andy has as well. They're awesome. So it's an honor to step into Andy's shoes this year and see how it comes about. But it's going to be fun. It's going to well, be the honor is ours. You know, it really is. It. I wouldn't be doing the show, and, and I'm not just saying this because Randy's on the show. If Randy Miller hadn't said he would do it and Darren Murphy hadn't said he would do it, I couldn't do it. It wasn't a big band. It was just a few guys. And if you don't have the, the right guy playing Paul or Klaus Foreman <laughs> consideration and, and Ringo, you can't do it. You can't pull it off. But when you have that, I'm excited. It's almost going to be like doing it for the first time because we haven't ever done this rhythm section. And, and I know uh, Darren Murphy and Randy Miller and I just have a great love and, and respect for each other. Yeah, that I think can make it work. And is Steve Wilson, your old compatriot from Zen Archer, going to be able to make it up? Yeah, he's going to set in on some tunes. We're still figuring that out, what he'll be playing on. That's what Stephen and I are going to figure out this week when we start our first rehearsal, or we're going to sit down and go through the tunes and see who's yeah. doing what. It sounds but great. Yes, he'll be there. And uh, also, Stephen has a guitarist, Ben. I don't know his last Big name. Talk is his name. And I've heard him play. He's an excellent guitarist. Yeah, you sent a long set with 31 songs. So that's, what, two and a half hours? Yeah, that's what I'm shooting for, two and a half. And there's going to be some songs, there'll be some adjustments to that set that I'll discuss with Randy when we get together. We're talk, still talking about different songs he, he wants to perhaps sing. And then I'm, I'm starting to look at things. Oh, well, when you do a set, it's always like the next day, oh, I forgot this, I forgot that, I forgot this. And I mean, it's just too many songs. You can't do them all. So that'll be fun for Randy and I to suss out and, and uh, maybe even right up to, to the end, we, we might have some uh, changes in the uh, song order and stuff like that. But this is the set I sent you guys is pretty close to it. Yeah, a nice combination of Beatles songs and Lennon solo songs, although I don't see Woman in here anywhere. 
Well, it was. That's the first one I thought of after I wrote the set that I know we don't have a woman in there, so it might get added. But I'm almost going to have to take something else out. Like another one that's not in there that we're going to do is Dear Prudence. We'll have to jiggle it around. It's pretty important. I don't know. There's been a year, at least not in 25 years or so, that we haven't done woman. So the crowd might get a little upset if we don't. <laughs> well, it's the most beatly of the Lennon solo songs, I think. Probably, yeah. That's a, that's an interesting way to see it. Also, you know, it's not the easiest song to play live because of the modulation. Such a beautiful song, yeah. It sure is. That was what John Lennon called it, his Beatle track off of the Double Fantasy. Oh, really? That's funny. I, 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 I'd never heard that before. The other thing we talked about earlier, I just wanted to make mention of the Toronto and one-to-one shows. I hadn't seen either one in many a moon, and I watched them today. Highlights are like uh, Year Blues and in Toronto or Instant Karma and the one-to-one show. Lennon had an interesting sense of what his live band should look like. Elephant's Memory was kind of a weird choice for the one-to-one show. <laughs> they're a good band, but they're very much a garage band. Yeah. Blues. My joke was that uh, Jesus on bass was playing a lot of notes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in, in a lot of ways, what they were doing was intentionally not being the Beatles. It's somewhere between Louie Louie and the punk generation, which was just starting. Somewhere between Louie Louie and the Ramones, let's say. Lennon pretty much invented punk music in my eyes. I, I moved to England right before punk happened, and so I kind of saw why it happened. But you know, before that, uh, he had done Cold Turkey, and he had done the Plastic Ono Band. And I found out what's more punk than that. And so I really think, you know, they, they like to say Neil Young is a uh, grandfather of grunge. I like to say John Lennon is a father of punk. It's just so much of that music that I heard today uh, listening back. It's punk music. He was just deciding to pick up from where he left off in 1961. That's what the Beatles were doing in Germany. Yeah. Letting it rip, letting it go. And for me, probably one of the most provocative and profound records I ever heard in my life at the age of 15, I believe it was, uh, when I heard Plastic Ono Band. Uh, it changed my life because I'd never heard a pop singer do that, except maybe John Lennon and the Beatles. But it was just so revealing and, and so raw. It heartened me when I would hear a song like uh, Working Class Hero to go, a guy that could sing basically uh, the the telephone book and make millions of dollars doing it, chooses instead to do this. It can't help himself but to do this and probably thinks anything less than that is not cool and, and not worthy of him doing. You know, he obviously wasn't trying to come up with a hit singles, classic auto band. It hit me right between the eyes as a young kid and changed the way I, I approached my life. Uh, have you heard some of the alternate takes and things from the box set, which came out a couple of years ago? I heard some of it. I don't have it, and, and I, I should probably get it. I'm sorry I don't. John likes to talk about some of those outtakes, particularly that mother's take that's uh, in the Plastic Ono box. That's probably one of my favorite things, is that they just took the vocal track and played it. <laughs> and it will just... Kill you. Oh, totally. It's... it's everything mesmerizing and you don't even know how his vocal cords can do that i mean it's just amazing i just, I just gotta, gotta tell you goodbye goodbye 
was like we've all probably sang in the studio. And you have to get to some point of a precision, and, and but, but you also have to get that point of abandon. Mama, don't go! Daddy, come home! Mama, don't go! let it rip like that i would think in, th- in that manner like probably paul mccartney was a really good influence on john lennon how he would just like push the envelope you know yeah when i watch it back and i just watch that first take of i've got a feeling and i dig a pony it just didn't occur to me all these years that they were sitting on that rooftop where it's in london january 30th and I've lived there many years. It's it's called on June thirtieth, you know, on a rooftop, Paul. When I got a feeling, I just watch a light go off and say, "Okay, he, he just does that. He just turns on one of the best vocal programs." I'm talking about, and it's just so uh, every little bit of it is so incredible. Is as good good of a rock vocal as I've ever heard. And then, of course, he pushes John, and John sings the crap out of the, I dig a pony. And chances are they never, ever did it again. You know, I mean, they did another take of, of a couple of them, but, you know, that was it. Although it's interesting to hear John talk about how he has to prepare to sing like that. Yeah. Yes. I haven't heard him, I haven't heard him talk about that. I'd like to know more about that. Yeah, in Get Back, right around when Heather's in there, there's this oh, maybe about two or three minutes of John talking to Paul and George Martin about how I'm not quite ready to sing it because I've got to do this and I've got to do that, and I've got to prepare my voice to be able to sing in that fashion. Right. right. Which yeah. is exactly what Paul went through to do Oh Darling. Yeah. He had to prepare his voice. He came in days in a row and, and, and sang it. So they definitely had a way of doing it, but they had to prepare for it. Pushing the envelope. I think Mother's the epitome of pushing it. Yeah. Myself. Yeah. Having, you know, at least attempted to scream like that, I think the fact that he can come back to this note, and when it's a cappella, it's spot on. He sings every note true. Yeah, when I heard it as a young boy, it blew my mind, and 50 years later, it blows my mind just as much. It's like the truth, you know. Yeah, I like what Bob Dylan said in his box set biograph. He's talking about uh, how music's gotten watered down. He says it's all become uh, some Pepsi Cola commercial. <laughs> you, know, he's, you even have a uh, Ray Charles singing about coffee. What do you think John Lennon's singing about when he says, "Give me some truth"? Yeah, Bob, <laughs> get you. Yeah. He didn't do that. But he certainly knew the argument about whether or not you use work that you composed for a reason commercially. Every artist has to face that. Pete Townsend says, I sold my songs because I wrote them to make money. And it doesn't matter if if it has some special memory to you. They're my products. So you have that, or you can decide, no, my work is a different thing. I think that's where Lennon 
came down. I understand both those trains of thought. It's, it's, it's like nobody's business what Pete Townsend wants to do with his songs. And, you know, I hear his songs all the time in commercials. It doesn't upset me as much as when I hear Revolution. I don't know why. I think it's because John came down on a different side. He felt like his work was not something you sell off. Well, I mean, that was Paul's comment when you don't want any of the Beatles stuff to be used in commercials. Why are you letting Buddy Holly stuff? Well, Buddy did commercials. And, and he's right. Buddy Holly used his own music in commercials when he was alive. In Paris, they lined up in the streets. In Rome, it was standing room only. In L.A. and New York, his concerts sold out in an hour. In cities all across America, Paul McCartney and his new band is the hottest ticket in town. So if you want to go, get in line early and get out your Visa card. Because a concert like this doesn't take place every day, and it doesn't take American Express. Visa, it's everywhere you want to be. Since we had this up and since we have two good bass players and, well, me, why don't we talk a little bit about John moving from Paul to Klaus as his main bass player? They have very different styles. It totally struck me going back through this music that I was learning almost as many Klaus Foreman bass lines as I was McCartney's. And McCartney obviously has his style and one of the best on the planet. And it seems like John's music stylistically changed as an independent artist, solo artist. And I think Klaus's style, which is more simplistic, not as busy, actually fits very well. If you listen to Imagine, I mean, it's very just simple notes. You listen to the Plastic Ono Band album, it's simplicity, but it's beautiful the way it's played. I can't imagine McCartney playing on the Plastic Ono album. It would ruin some of the songs, and not that he couldn't do it. Obviously, he could. But I think Klaus was a great choice for John in the post-Beatle years because I think the lyrics mattered more to him as he evolved as a solo artist. I think it always had, but I think he tried to cut through a lot of the production and made it about the vocals more. And that's why Klaus seems to be a logical bass player for him. Well, and that's why the remixes are so great. Of uh, the Lennon stuff in particular, you'll listen to what they call these ultimate edition mixes. You're getting more of the drums, you're getting more of the bass, and you're getting more of the vocal. It's awesome. And that's the thing that I've been able to do getting ready for this show is being able to listen to some of the isolated bass parts that are available. It's amazing. Paul, if anyone else was playing it, like on Penny Lane, it would almost be considered overplaying. But it fits perfectly. It's so musical that you can't help but love it. It's one of the high points of the song, at least for me. Me too. But, But yeah, Klaus and Paul, very different bass players, very different styles. I think Klaus was the right man for the job for John's 
post-fetal years. I do too. It's interesting that when John was putting together the band for 1980, one of the things that he reportedly said was, I don't want any of the guys that I played with in the 70s. I want a new set of guys. I want a new sound for the record that became Double Fantasy. Yeah, he's got Tony Levin. I mean, you know, again, we were talking about how a woman sounds like a Beatles song. Tony Levin is playing a McCartney-esque bass line there. Yes, he is. But I think we're going to be doing I'm Losing You at the show. At least that's one that I'm wanting to do. Yeah. And the bass part on that, to me, is very restrained, conservative. I'm almost missing some of that McCartney energy. I love the tune. But I feel like the bass is really playing it safe. Maybe John just told him, you know, keep it simple. Make it sound like Klaus Foreman. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he'd already attempted that song with Cheap Trick. And the second yeah. version, I'm sure, was like, let's tone this down. Yeah. yeah. And Klaus, I've heard him on other things. Obviously, he played on a bunch of Harry Nilsson and George Harris. He's the bass player on Carly Simon's You're So Vain. Wow. Yeah. There's a documentary on him uh, about uh, a sideman's tale, I believe is the name of it. And he actually shows how he came up with that. what is quite possibly one of the most well-known bass riffs in all of rock and roll is, you know. I don't know whether he had just been been sort of noodling on his bass, but he started playing this. And I said, son of a gun, in reaction to his playing. It didn't have anything to do with the song. Just he began to play, son of a gun. You know, I was so surprised. Son of a gun. That's how we're starting the record. And it led the way for that song to come to life. It turned out to be one of the most famous bass introductions in the history of pop music. Yeah, the chords. It was funny, Randy, you were saying that for Lennon, he was very simplistic. But I had gone back and listened to when he played with Patty Klaus and Gibson back in 1965. And it was mm-hmm. like he was playing lead bass. <laughs> I mean, he was just like, he was why that song was going. <laughs> I'll be no good without you, baby. played on uh, the Manfred Mann hit, too. 
Yeah, uh, Quinn the Eskimo. No, he's a very capable bass player, but his style, he adapted it to John. Yeah. I think John wanted simplicity and he cared more about the feel of it than he did about putting in a lot of notes. Well, I mean, the one who taught him how to play bass was apparently Stu Sutcliffe. Stu gave him his bass, and it's like, well, play this and play this and play that, and that's how he learned how to play bass. And I want to go snog with Astrid for a while. You you (laughs) too play bass. What struck me when I was looking at this was that, you know, the Beatles inspired a generation to become musicians, and Klaus Vorman was the first. Yeah, you're right. And became... A pretty successful musician. Well, and there was actually at least a little bit of time before McCartney took over that they were talking about, well, maybe we want Klaus in as the bass player. They became, later on, when they were recording uh, I'm the Greatest, John, George, Ringo, and Klaus. They called themselves the Ladders, apparently. Of course, the press got a hold of it. It's like, oh my gosh, the Beatles are getting back together with somebody else. And that was never the serious thing. But clearly on... Plastic Ono Band, the way that Klaus and Ringo play together is really cool. It sure is. Was it called The Ladders, like something you climb to get on the roof? Yes. Billy could have joined them, and they would have been quite a great band. But I, I totally agree, John. Playing slowly, and a lot of the songs, like Mother, for instance, it's got a very slow tempo. And to play bass and drums very simply and make it feel good is not easy to do. They sound like they've been playing together for years. The combination when they do God, that's just incredible. I mean, they just hang together perfectly. Yeah, people don't get that, that playing the, the slow songs and playing it in time, that's the biggest challenge anyone can ever have, cutting a track. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it's easy. To play something fast and loose, you know. Yeah, goose step, mama. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you say that Ringo and Klaus had been playing together for years, in a way. Certainly, since the final trips to Germany, and Klaus was always hanging around through the 60s and from the sounds of things, sometimes they would be there looking at art books and talking about art, but sometimes they'd just be jamming. Yeah, his work on All Things Must Pass is really, Mm. really awesome. It's powerful. And it stylistically is a bit different than the way he plays with John. And I don't know that he played on the whole album. I mean, it seems like almost every musician who was somebody was on that (laughs) album. Right. But John or Ed, you guys might know. He played on most of the record, but there's a book which came out on All Things Must Pass when the anniversary happened by Ken Womack, uh, who is writing the Mal Evans book now, by the way. Uh, And he actually goes into detail because the only reason we now know who was playing on what track was because Mal Evans kept records of who he paid on any given day. Ah, excellent. We know what track was recorded on what day, and we know who was in there and got paid for playing on that session. So you put those two together, you can pretty much figure out who was playing on any track. Because, well, George did not give us those credits. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Klaus on Beware of Darkness, Isn't It a Pity, and some of the bigger songs. And the album, the rhythm feels fantastic. It's just got a great feel. So you're right. Ringo and he, they played well together for a long time. Yeah. 
I kind of wish John would have used them on double fantasy, actually. <laughs> Me too. Uh, well, Klaus couldn't have done what Tony Levin did on Woman. I mean, you know, just to take it for example. That's a good point. I, and I'm a huge Tony Levin, Peter Gabriel fan. And Tony Levin can do pretty much anything with a bass guitar. I kind of wish he kept them around for some time in New York City. Elephant's memory is okay, but they're kind of just okay into my mind. Well, yeah, yeah. You, you described it well before. They're kind of a garage band that, that uh, he just picked up because uh, they were in the neighborhood probably or whatever. You, I don't think I don't never thought of it as that's this is my band. I'm gonna you know set the world on fire. I mean, he obviously used different people on. The more important, you know, not to say it's not important uh, record, but it just seemed like he was coming from a different place with that record, that music, and you know, than he was on Plastic Ono, Imagine, Walls and Bridges. Well, and in fact, the band that he picked up afterwards, uh, the so-called BMOF or, or Band of Mother, well, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, if, if you've seen the sur- salute to Sir Lou Grade, which was uh, really kind of the last time that John played live, or, or any of those rock and roll sessions where he he played live or, or quasi live that was a really really hot band actually what is it was for the rock and roll sessions and for uh john did a couple of videos for the uh, the old gray whistle test oh man okay so he, he did stand by me and he did slip and sliding and you know some of the stuff off of rock and roll live or more or less live mm-hmm. and the band that was with him was there's actually a couple guys in there who uh, have gone on to a lot of other things uh, played with Billy Joel, Ringo's first band leader. Mark Rivera. Now, I guarantee you've heard this guy's saxophone. In addition to Billy Joel, he's also played the saxophone for Peter Gabriel, Hall and Oates, John Lennon. He is a big deal. But he was in that outfit. So he went back from Elephant's Memory to a much more what I would call studio-ready professional band on rock and roll. Although it's not even really playing on rock and roll. It's for the promotional stuff for rock and roll. Because the players on rock and roll are the same old guys, more or less. Who's the rhythm section on rock and roll? Klaus is playing on it, and Keltner was the drummer. Jim Keltner, right. Another great drummer. Oh, yeah. Lennon's the only one that didn't use Keltner all that often, although Paul didn't, but Paul always had his own. This is talking about Paul. Think about the album Wildlife, which came out maybe seven or eight months after the Plastic Ono Band album, Mm -hmm. and how different those are, how raw and just in your face and honest that the Plastic Ono Band album is. And Paul comes out with Wildlife, which is the antithesis of that. It's got Mary Had a Little Lamb. It's a light album. And it always struck me uh, that maybe after that, Paul realized that, hey, I think I'm going to have to get serious here. I saw Uh, Paul during that time. uh, They played in a gymnasium in germany that uh near where i lived at- oh wow so you actually saw them on the yeah. the very first tour the i did and, and, and that record wildlife was the first time in my life that i hadn't been bowled over by something any one of them had done i, I heard that record especially after coming off of a plastic donut band i felt just what you just described randy so he does the yeah. show and they're up there and, and they don't sound like they can play much. You know, I'm just, I'm even then a young boy, but I was in a band. And then at some point he kind of dismisses everybody and, and he sits at a, uh, an electric piano and sings, maybe I'm amazed. And it just, 
blows the crowd away. It's like before that, they're going, Mary had a little lamb. And then he does that. He just flips a switch, does that. And then they close with a little Richard Long Tall Sally. And that was the only Beatle thing he did of the whole show. And I think he just wanted to get out and play and say, I'm a human being. And maybe even intentionally made it that light. But it was very light. It wasn't very good to me. Uh, yeah, it, it was a letdown for me too because I was blown away with McCartney. Yeah, and Ram, the plastic Ono. No. Jesus, Ram, and uh, so I, I, I leave that record out <laughs> of my discography of Paul McCartney. I, I think Cherries, then Ram. He put out the live album. The live album is actually much better than I ever would have thought it would be from that era. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. that came out a couple years ago. So from the wildlife yeah. era. From from the wildlife era. I'd yeah, like to, I'd like to hear. It. Maybe maybe it changed my mind a bit. I mean. They literally were, it was shocking. I, and I thought it was very cool that he played in the gymnasium down the road from me, you know. It was, it was amateurish. They weren't well rehearsed. Linda was still very much learning the keyboards, but they could rock. They yeah. could actually rock. Yeah. I, 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 want, I want to hear it because it, I mean, I had fun at the show. It wasn't like I was sitting there being a, you know, 13 year old uh, critic. I do remember, uh, maybe I'm amazed, and Long Tall Sally was going, okay, you know, yeah, they rocked it out on, 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 on Long Tall Sally. Well, blue moon of Kentucky, keep on shining. Shine on the one that's gone, left me blue. If you can, come down to Austin on October the 9th. At the 310. ACL uh, Live. You know, the funny thing about this is that I just put a number. I said, I'm going to do it to 25. I think that's a lot of years to do this. And I have a nonprofit that I work with these children from abroad. And, and I said, well, I'm going to raise some money for them. It's uh, my nonprofit. It's guitarsforafrica.com. I've been in six different countries over there doing work with uh, kids in African musicians. So anyway, I just said 25 years, this will be it. And we did the 25th year. And as soon as the word got out, like we're not going to do it anymore, everyone started coming. You know, It's like the crowd really. And then I think the (laughs) next year we were up against Paul McCartney. (laughs) That's down the town lake from us. And everyone said, you're going to cancel, aren't you? Once he got booked, I said, no, I'm not. You know, I'm just going to do the show and wish I was that Paul McCartney. But for the people that can't make it, you get in the Paul McCartney show, but they can come to us. And, you know, so we, yeah, he's been to Austin four times since the last time he was here in Houston. Yeah. You know, he, he did the, he did the ACL show twice uh, and he did the two shows uh, on the UT campus. And it's like both of those since the last time he was here in 2012. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And those shows were awesome. Both of them. I was at one show in each sets. I did make both of those tours in all. Uh, Good. It was two of the best concerts I've ever seen. I want to say something real quickly about Paul. There's a fan of the Number 9 Orchestra that comes to every show for many years now, and his name is Brandon Rummel. 
His mama is uh, Leah Rummel. And Brandon is a special needs uh, young boy that doesn't speak very well. And he had no communication skills at all until one day his mom was taking him back from the hospital and she put on the Beatles on the CD player in the car and a light went off. And since that day, they've just been communicating. He has it. I've been interviewed by him on a show where he has a voice that sounds like it because it's automated, like a BBC voice. Oh, Steve, when did you first hear that? the Beatles and how did they change your life? And and he's just immersed in Beatles stuff. As we speak, they're in England right now. They just did a big tour of Liverpool and he's just beside himself with joy, mm. uh, Brandon. But anyway, his mom wrote to Paul McCartney's manager and told her the story I just told you. And right before he came, she, she got a message from Paul's manager, this woman, uh, Victoria, I can't remember her name, uh, saying, Paul wants you to come to the show, and he sent a limousine to their home to bring them to the show. And then when all the people were, the VIPs were backstage, he, you know, someone came out and said, we want all you to take your seats in the bleachers, but he wants Brandon and Leah to stay uh, here. And he came out, and Brandon had been given a ukulele with the, uh, his, uh, what's the, his last record at the time. The Egypt Station. Yes, there you go. And he gave it to Paul. And Paul played him a song on the ukulele, and they danced. Wow. And then at the end of the show, you can see it on videos of the show when he's leaving the stage. Brandon, who can't walk very well or anything like that, he stood up from the minute Paul walked on stage and never sat down. And, and when he's walking off the stage, Paul looks up at him and gives him a kiss. That's very cool. One of Paul's charities that he doesn't really like to talk about very much is uh, Nordoff Robbins, and that's exactly what they do, to use music as a method for helping non-communicative kids. There you go. It works. They work. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's amazing. Uh, Brent, uh, they just wrote me from England. We've got tickets to the show already. <laughs> oh, man. Going off of your set list for your show, there's one name that I don't recognize. Sela. Who is that? Sela's magnificent. She's uh, very prominent on my last record, which is called okay. uh, uh, Over the Red Sea. She's of Indian descent, and she's a great singer and a, a great songwriter. In fact, her record last year was my favorite one that came out of anybody because she's someone I admire. So Sela uh, will be singing, and, uh, and, and probably she'll be joining us uh, – and this uh, six of us are going to do the cuz. And so she'll be uh, the only woman voice in there. But she's a very unique singer. I never think of her voice as female or male. I, she's just Sela. I, I would encourage anyone to look her up. I'm pretty familiar with the other names on here. Uh, you know, Jorge Castillo or Johnny Gowdy from Skyrocket. Uh, you know, they're people, if you're in the area, you know who they are. Yeah, yeah. Kathy McCarty was the lead singer of Glass Eye, which was one of the big bands to come out of Austin during the 70s and 80s and New Wave and stuff like And And same with Larry Seaman. He was in the band Standing Waves that were very popular. And so for mm -hmm. me, I kind of went out of my way to find these guys that had been doing it back when I started doing it. We weren't really in the same club or anything, but I always liked them. So I invited them. That Again, they were both going to be part of the 30th show. And then when that didn't happen, I reached out to them and said, sorry about that pandemic. Boy, I, should, I, I needed some time off. But it's uh, my joke about that. I was saying before the pandemic, I really need some time off. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not that much. I think we've taken up enough of your time. Thank you very much for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you, yeah. Ed. And thank you, John. So nice to meet you both. I hope I get to meet you in person. 
and Randy and I will be uh, rocking on on this show. And I can't wait. I'm, I'm so excited to be working with Randy. And I, I, I think we both have I, I feel the same way, Steve. Yeah, well, you know it, brother. And, and it's just a nice feeling, you know, people that care this much about the music. So thank you for having me. It's Sunday, October the 9th, 310 ACL Live. Yeah. Tickets are available through Ticketmaster if you're in the area. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can exactly. get them anywhere, but but you know you have to be in the area to see the show. I'm sure you wouldn't mind if people bought tickets and weren't able to show up. You get the money anyway. Yes, please do. So, you know, actually, actually that ha- does happen. People, you know, that are behind you, they buy show- tickets, and that day they decide that they're gonna, you know, go fishing instead. But it's a, not a huge uh, venue. But it's like these days, I never know what to expect, and uh, so our goal will be to sell it out and that's mainly just to pay the musicians we oftentimes the show's a charity right now we don't have any uh, sponsors so I don't, i'm not sure how that's going to go but it's it's also important for me to pay the working stiffs that i rehearse for weeks and weeks <laughs> before the thing you know just to you know everybody get, gets paid about two dollars an hour <laughs> well, again, especially after the pandemic, nobody's been paid at all for the last two years. It's insane. And it really uh, affected me. Had I not moved out of the Austin into the sticks, I would have been in big trouble. And had I not paid off our studio, you know, where we, we had a mortgage on it and all that, we paid it off right before the pandemic. I, I don't know how I would have gotten by because I, where I live, I don't have the overhead. I had in Austin, but it's good to be alive and on the other side of it. I hope we are on the other side of it. I just did my first big show in Austin in two and a half years, a place where I used to play every night, basically, you know, lots of the time. Yeah. It was, it was wild. It was crazy to be, you know, to think that two and a half years. And Randy, are we going to get to see Zen Archer back anytime soon in any form? Um, I've been working on a new album. Steve Wilson's been coming up here. And we're over halfway through with that. They're all dear friends of mine, and we enjoy playing music. It's just logistics make it difficult for rehearsal. Uh, But I would like to see that at some point. Uh, I appreciate you asking about that. Right now, you know, the big fish to fry is this uh, show, yeah. John Lennon tribute. And I would say this you know, Houston is pretty well represented. Uh, in the band, uh, I was thinking Darren's from Houston For originally, sure. yeah. and uh, of course me and Johnny Gowdy as well. There you go. Uh, so uh, if there are any Houston folks that are listening to the podcast, uh, come on up. Austin will greet you with open arms. It always does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sounds like fun. A good time's guaranteed for all. <laughs> Although people put down the Houston music scene, and there's reason to do that, but yeah. there is still a pretty good one here. Yeah. Blues, Texas blues, don't be putting down Houston. Yeah. Folk music, and all the lots of strong stuff out of Houston, that's for sure. Well, and, and then, the, then the whole rap boom. I mean, yeah, know, that too. Paul Wall, Paul Wall and all of that, you know, that, that's still a big thing which came out of this town. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. All right, great. Uh, Thank you. We, you know, uh, like I say, thanks again. Um, everybody knows about the show. You know, hopefully we'll get some people coming out to see you guys. Um, John, we'll figure out what we're doing next week soon, right? We always seem to. We haven't failed yet. Right. It was good talking to you guys. Yeah, same here. It was a lot of fun. Thanks Love so it. much for Thank having us. Thank you very us. much, man. 
subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. whenever I was a bit depressed I'd always reach out for a guitar I still do that's how I discovered music can heal it can do more than just ease the pain it can throw a lifeline to kids who can't be reached in any other way that's the power of music I'll tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.